numbers in our zip code here, 77089. And we're going to ask people how they're doing after Harvey. We've had the chance of serving the community quite a bit when the disaster struck. And people are still in rough shape, a number of folks. And we want to do a bit of a survey to see what needs they have so that we can follow up with them as well. And so we're going to gather together on Sunday, February 25th, and we're going to go out, and each team will visit about 10 homes. Just knock on the doors. You'll introduce yourself. I'm from Sagemont Church. My name is so-and-so. We just want to know how you're doing. What are your needs? Now, we're not just doing this for information. We're going to, as I say, have a follow-up program. We're bringing in additional construction teams down the road. In fact, we're going to house a ton of them across the street in our building. So a lot of our folks in the area are still in kind of rough, rough shape. And so we don't want to forget them at all. Some of you are some of the folks in rough shape. So we want to uh, go out and uh, each team will visit about 10 homes and we can get that done in about an hour and a half. So it won't take all of your time. Now here's the deal. Uh, now I, I feel like someone making an infomercial. The first 200, I, I, I'm, just, I'm just telling you, that I didn't come up with this. The first 200 who sign up, Get a set of Ginsu knives. No, that's, <laughs> never mind. That's a TV thing. You, but what you do get is lunch. The deacons are going to provide for us hamburgers and hot dogs and stuff like that for the first 200. And then not only do you get lunch, you get a T-shirt. I have no idea what it says on it. It may be real, real ugly, and you don't ever want to be caught dead in it. But, but we're giving it to you. Anyway, for the first 200. Now, our outreach is not limited to 200. Just these extraordinary gifts are limited to the first 200. <laughs> Anybody else can go and join us, uh, but uh, we'll only have enough hot dogs and hamburgers and stuff like that for 200 people. So... If you would like to participate, we'll provide training and all the rest. Do not worry. If you say, I'm not a, really, uh, a very bold person, don't worry. You'll be matched up with someone who is, who can do the talking, and you can do the praying. And even if this is a little bit out of your comfort zone, so what? Let's do it anyway. Who knows how God can use it? Now, this is just phase one of what we want to do in our area. There are approximately 48,000 homes in uh, our zip code here, 77089. 48,000. Our goal for this year is to visit every single one. So this is just phase one of it. We're calling it Project 48. Now, to participate in it, all you have to do is go to the church website. So that's www.sagemontchurch.org. If you haven't visited the website before, this is a good opportunity to do so. It's loaded with good stuff. And when you go to the website, look for the, for the section labeled events, events. You click on it, you get some more options. Click on the option that says Project 48, 48, Project 48. Click on that and it'll ask for your identifying information and that's how you sign up for this. Now again, even if you don't want the shirt or the hot dog, it would be good if you could register so we could have an idea in advance how many people are going to be doing this and that'll, because we're going to, chart out the territory for that day. So that's February 25th. We'll be telling you more about it. And I hope you might find your way to participate in this. It'll be right after church on that particular Sunday. Okay, there we have it. Now we are in 1 Samuel chapter... Uh, oh, yes, sir. <laughs> you know, Doc... That's B.J. Garner, Dr. Garner, and Laura right there. And that was a very serious heart attack. Really, well, it was life-threatening. And uh, here's, here's the doc right there. A year ago today. Well, I didn't realize that. Well, God bless you, brother. We are really glad the Lord lengthened your days. You're a blessing. And uh, this is the Garner's daughter right there and son-in-law from Dallas. And because they're from Dallas, they're late. Here. And as a result, they're getting, they get cheap seats because you're not on. Oh, good to see you guys. Blessings to you. Okay, we're in First Samuel chapter 22. Let me tell you something as you find your way there. David is in trouble. He's on the run from an increasingly crazy king. Saul is losing it. David's running. His most recent adventure took him into Philistine territory. 
crazy. Where's he going to go? So he runs into Philistine territory. And the Philistines find out David is there. They remember David is the guy who killed their great giant, Goliath. David has a reputation now of being a Philistine killer. Therefore, the Philistines are not going to open their doors and hearts you know, with open arms and welcome David. They're going to kill him. David knows this. He's a threat to them. So what does he do? He feigns madness. He dribbles on his beard and does things that worked. The Philistines said, well, let's not mess with David. He's out of his mind. Let's just not even worry about him. So he survives. That's what's happening. Now something else happens in 1 Samuel 22. Look at it. So David departed from there. The there is Philistine territory. He escaped to the cave of Adullam. We don't know the specific location, but the general area is laden with caves. You can hide in them even today. That's what he did. But it wasn't just David. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to be with him. Why? Saul is really, really losing control. And David is not the only one in jeopardy. So too is his dad and brothers and family. They're running for their lives as well. They're all hiding out, you see, in the cave. Where is it? It's in kind of a, the demilitarized zone geographically. You've got the Philistines on one side, the Israelites on another. This is an area in between. Pretty smart for David to hide out there. The Philistines are not going there. The Israelites are not going there. So that's kind of where he is. And then this happens, verse 2. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented. Good night. That's about everyone. All these people gathered to him, and he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. That's very perplexing to me. These are the marginalized members of society, everyone, whatever the category. These are the down and outers. Somehow, they were attracted to David. What in the world? They went to him. He's on the run. He's the king the anointed king, but he's never been in the palace because the present king, who David will replace, is out of his mind. He's paranoid and losing it. Once killed David, David couldn't even be in the palace. I think that attracted these marginalized members of society today because David was one of them. Where's David going to go? He's on the run too. Not only that, David was the youngest kid. His brothers are out there getting the glory of serving in the army. David was given the most subservient of tasks, caring for sheep. They were not threatened by David. People are like, we're like this. Listen, when you're struggling with something, you feel safe with someone who can sympathize. You don't feel safe with someone who can't relate. They went to David because he's a king they could relate to and who could relate to them. You know who David reminds me of? King Jesus. Do you know he too was marginalized? The Bible says he was forsaken of men. He was despised and forsaken of man. You know, the Bible says he came to his own and his own didn't even receive him. I feel comfortable with King Jesus, don't you? Listen what Hebrews says about him. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. You can't run to the Lord Jesus with anything to which he will say, I don't understand. You can't. You say, I feel lonely. He says, I know. Me too. I was. I feel rejected. Oh, me too. I got family troubles. Me too. I've been falsely accused, slandered. Me too. There are people out there who want to hurt me. Me too. I hope you're not reluctant to run to the throne of grace, pour out your heart. You'll never have the Lord Jesus say, <laughs> I just don't get I don't get you. No. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. I think David is kind of a foreshadowing, King David, of King Jesus. So these 400 run to David. And he, you know what he does? He takes 400 down and outers and forms them into a fighting unit that strikes fear into every enemy. 
Wow. My, I think King Jesus has done something similar. He took folks like you and me, lost, broken, disconnected and disenfranchised, most of us, empty. And he has formed us into a church, his body, of which the Bible says not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. I'm not strong, neither are you. But somehow God has formed us into a rather strong body. In spite of our flaws and weaknesses, we're kingdom culture. And God's getting his job done through ones, weak ones such as you and I. As with King David, even more with King Jesus. Now, here's what happened. I, 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 like, I, I like to refer to, to the Lord Jesus as the Messiah of the marginal. The Messiah of the marginal. You know, he doesn't do his primary recruiting amongst the elite. People with silver spoons and all the rest. Not that some of them don't come to faith, but most of them have a harder time submitting to the Lord Jesus because they got a good portion of what the world has to offer. But when you don't, you feel you're not a part. You're not mainstreamed. Oh, you're the very person the Lord is looking for. He's the Messiah of the marginal. As folks like that ran to David, I hope folks like that even here are running to Jesus. So here's what happened, verse 3. David went from there to a place called Mizpah of Moab. A bonus question, what modern-day country is Moab located in today? Yes, ma'am. Yes, very good. You should get a front-row seat, Rita. Not, okay. <laughs> Jordan, modern-day Jordan. Now, this is very interesting. Why is the Israelite, David, going to Moab? Here's what it says. He, and he said to the king of Moab, Take, or let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. What connection does David have with the Moabites? Do you happen to know the name of David's great-grandmother? Ruth, what's her ethnicity? Moabite. <laughs> See the connection there? So he goes. He's got a good friendship with the Moabite king, and he's concerned about his mom and dad. They're probably elderly, and so he deposits them over there in Moab. And then he says, until I know what God will do for me. Can I tell you something? David doesn't know what his future holds. That's very distressing. That's the cause of anxiety, worry. What if... That's the disease of anxiety. What if? Now, David had no answer. What if this happened? What if that happened? He had no idea. Listen, you and I know of our ultimate future. I'm going to heaven. You are too if you've, you're connected by faith to the eternal Jesus. We go to heaven. That's our ultimate destiny. But, but you and I don't know of our immediate future, meaning I don't know what the rest of the day holds. Neither do you let alone tomorrow. I don't know if I'm getting tomorrow. Neither do you. I'm going to tell you that's a little disturbing. I'm sure it was disturbing for David. And so he says, Mama, Dad, you're going to stay with the king of Moab until I know what God will do for me. Now, that's the key in dealing with anxiety. He doesn't say, until I know what God will do to me, no, 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 no. God's not his adversary. Until I know what God will do for me. David knew in spite of all that was going on, it was inexplicably painful. Still, he knew God was up to things for him. Do you know that? Let me help persuade you this is true. How could it be that Almighty God would have given his best, his only begotten son, for marginalized people like you and me, if with him, he didn't have good intentions for our future. It's not possible. In fact, the Bible says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He doesn't promise a smooth road. It could be a rocky road, but I know the ultimate destination, so do you. And when I'm in the course of running into the obstacles and bumps in the road, I know God is using it for me, not against me. So that was David's conviction here. In verse 4, he left them, his parents, with the king of Moab. They stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. The prophet of Gad said to David, 
I mean, all of a sudden, we're reading about someone called the prophet of Gad. Now, I've heard of the tribe by that name, but I never heard of this guy. What do you know of the prophet of Gad? Do you know anything? I hope not, because it doesn't say anything. He just shows up. This must have been astoundingly incurred. Ma'am, come over here. There's this, come up, come sit. Is it, yeah, because I plan on going on for a couple hours. I, I don't want you to stand the whole time. So, so listen how encouraging this must have been. We don't know who this guy is. David's feeling alone. He's been stripped of all of his mooring points. Think about it. His wife, who happens to be Saul's daughter, he's apart from his own wife. He can't go home. In fact, he had to escape through a window. His father-in-law wants to kill him. He's separated from his wife, from his home. He's just had to deposit his parents in a foreign country. He's got nothing going on. He is stripped of it all. He's really intensely alone. I suppose he would have the temptation to say, God, where are you? I don't know if he said that, but God reads his heart and puts in David's way a guy called the prophet of Gad. And the prophet of Gad says to David, he says to him, don't stay in the stronghold, depart and go to the land of Judah. And David does it. The prophet essentially says, David, don't stay here, go there. Have you had these experiences where along the road of life, you're in pain, you're dealing with some rough stuff, and you cry out to God, and he puts something in the way. And it just reminds you, where is God when you hurt? He's with you in the hurt. And somehow, though the hurt hasn't gone away, now it's manageable. Because what really is terrifying about the hurt is that you're alone in it. And then God reminds you, with a guy like this guy, prophet of Gad, God reminds me, I didn't bring you this far to abandon you in the desert. I have an investment in your life. I redeemed you. I bought you with quite a price. You may feel alone, but you're never alone. Listen, if you've not had these experiences, uh, I would question whether you're really connected to God. I'm getting a little harsh, but um, this is one of the marks of being a child of the king. The king takes care of his kids. Now, it doesn't mean the king's kids are immune from the throes of life, but, but the king's kids don't go through these things alone. You see evidence of the presence and provision of God. Now, we still don't understand his ways. Don't, don't misunderstand. We don't understand our father that much. But speaking of him being a father, if you're a father or a mother or granddad or grandmother, what would you do with your kids and grandkids along the road of life? You, 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 they're going to go through some stuff. Don't you want them to know I'm here for you? I'll never leave you or forsake you. Well, well, if you can pull that off, how much more our Heavenly Father? If you don't have the experience of being in dire straits and yet along the way seeing an evidence of the presence and concern of God, then I wonder if you're connected to him by faith. I was talking to a guy the other day. He's in bad shape physically, medically, got a bad diagnosis, a form of cancer. He lives in an outlying area outside of Houston, kind of rural area. He didn't have much. And he's seen, you know, one of these country doctors who, he didn't have access to a specialist. He needs a specialist. Well, we just prayed about it. He called me back a couple of days later. He said, you're not going to believe this. Well, it was like a long story. One thing led to another. Someone knew someone, someone, someone whatever. Anyway, he's getting matched up, not just with a specialist for his particular deal, but with some guy who's like one of the most world's renowned experts. This guy didn't have any money or anything like that. He's no VIP anything. He's a marginalized guy. How do you get access to these? This specialist, whatever kind of doctor, says he's going to take the case. Now, Now, I don't know the outcome, whether the man will be healed or not. That's not the issue. The big issue is that man ran into uh, something like the prophet of uh, 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 Gad. It was God reminding, you see that diagnosis that took you by surprise? It didn't take me by surprise. You feel absolutely cut off from all your mooring points. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Yeah, but I hold tomorrow and I hold you. You belong to me. And just to reinforce your confidence in me, oh, I'll match you up. Not just with an ordinary specialist. I'll match you up with like the number one guy in the world who does this kind of stuff. I did that for you. If you haven't had those experiences, why not? 
That's what a father does for his kids. So anyway, that's kind of what happens. So, so David relocates here because he runs into this guy. Now, look what happens, verse 6. While all this is happening, Saul, whose life experience is entirely different, they're both in pain. Listen, Saul, King Saul and King David are both in pain. Here's the difference. One's in pain alone. The other is not. David in pain says, I'm going to wait to see what God will do for me. Saul has no such assurance. There's nothing worse than being alone and hopeless in your pain. That's worse than the pain. David had the pain, but it became manageable because he had a refuge, and he ran to him. How do I know that? Because David wrote a whole songbook about it, the Psalms. But Saul wrote no such thing. When Saul departed from God, he, you're on your own. You don't want to be that way. So anyway, here's Saul's situation, verse 6. He heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah, that's his home, under the tamarisk tree on the height, that's a high ground, with his spear in his hand. Is that what you do at home? You do if you're paranoid. And all his servants were standing around him. Man, he's got bodyguards and a whole deal, but he's got his spear in his hand. Okay. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Here now, O Benjamites. Why do he call him that? Because he is one. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, so too are his boys. He says to him, Here now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse, who's the son of Jesse? Why does he call him David? You know what you'll see in here, this chapter, about three times. He calls him son of Jesse, son of Jesse. Son. He used to be on a first name basis with David, they were close associates. David played music for him, remember? Soothing music, the harp. David was his most trusted guy. David, remember David stood up. He was a kid. He was going to confront Goliath. Saul said, hey, take my armor. David said, thank you, old king, but it doesn't fit. I mean, they had a tracker. They had a history here. They were close. They were intimates. Now, now Saul's like on a last name basis with him. Son of Jesse. What happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. When the vertical dimension goes awry, so too the horizontal dimension. No. If you're not rightly related to God, you cannot be rightly related to people. <clears throat> I can usually tell whether someone has a close walk with God on the basis of how they're doing at home. You know, the guy who sings and serves here and goes home and beats his wife does not have it together with God. You can do all the singing and serving you want. I just found out you don't have it together with God. How we do interpersonally is a barometer of how we're doing vertically with almighty God. You know, the guy who does his thing on Sunday and then is just a bear cat on Monday. Wow. Something's wrong with that. You know, the guy who does his thing here, he's got a kind word for everyone here. When he gets home, he's just an angry beast with his kids, locks himself in a room and watches TV all the time. Something's wrong. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. One of the indications of a healthy relationship with God is a healthy relationship with those close to you and others. If you're not consistent that way, if your horizontal relationships don't reflect a good, healthy, vertical relationship, let us help you. We have a counseling center here, and we got some pastors here who'd be glad to pick you apart. <clears throat> don't mock God. The guy who comes in here who sings and serves and then has an affair, is having an affair. Come on. God is not mocked. Come on. Do yourself a favor. Get it together. Get it together before it's too late. God is not mocked. The barometer of how you are with God is how you are at home. Saul's not doing too good at home. He's not too good with God. So now he's on a last name basis with David, son of Jesse. So he's going through all this and he says to these people, Benjamites, verse 7, uh, will the son of Jesse also give to all of you fields and vineyards? He's saying, look at, under my regime, look at how you've prospered. I give you a bunch of stuff. Will he make you all the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? First of all, you've conspired against me. He's paranoid. You've conspired against me so that there's no one who discloses to me when my son, Jonathan, makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there's none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is. Everyone's out to get me. 
And then all of a sudden, someone named Doeg the Edomite. Where is Edom located today? Also Jordan. Rita, you got it again? <laughs> also Jordan. Hey, so have you heard of these three groups? Ammonites, Moabites, Edomites. These are non-Israelite groups we read about in the Bible. They all lived in modern-day Jordan. To help, this helps me remember. This is not the biggest thing in the world, but maybe you're interested. The present-day capital and the ancient capital of Jordan is Amman, Amman, Jordan. If you locate Amman, Jordan on the map and start going down south, the first territory you would come to is Ammonites, A. Think, think of A-M-E, A-M, Ammonites. Then just south of them, Moabites. Further south, Edomites. The Edomites are even south of the Dead Sea, east of the Jordan River. That's where these people groups live. So there's a character who's a non-Israelite, Edomite. Okay, so we read about Moab. Underneath Moab, the Edomites lived. This guy comes from them, Doeg, and he is hanging out with Saul. And so it says here, Doeg the Edomite, who was standing by the servant of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. Now, what's up there? Nob is a place in Israel where the priests resided. Levitical priests who served the tabernacle, offered sacrifices, all that kind of stuff. Nob. I have been there. It's a real place, only it's not called this today. If you're in Jerusalem and you're looking north from Jerusalem, to the east is the Mount of Olives. And further up north on the Mount of Olives, so from your vantage point, it would be northeast, on a hill is Nob. Today it's called Mount Scopus, Mount Scopus. And Hebrew University, a very fine university, is located there. It's very beautiful, and it masks a tragedy that took place in this very place. Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, from the word shalom, peace, has had very little peace in its history. Why? When you turn your back on the Prince of Peace, you can't have peace. And this is one of the non-peaceful events that took place there. By the way, I wish you'd go to Israel. I mean, and come back. Because <laughs> when you go, you get an idea where all these sites are. And when you read a rather obscure passage like we're reading now, it's not so obscure. You have a picture in your mind. Ah, no, I know where it is. If you're interested in going, I will give you a brochure. I have some. You can pray about it. We're going to go, Lord willing, end of October. If the Lord comes back before that, we will not be disappointed. That's fine. I'm okay about canceling the trip if the Lord comes. That would be all right. Anyway, if you haven't gone... Uh, the Bible will come alive. Your heart will come alive. You will see. You will have confirmed the veracity, truthfulness of everything you read in Scripture. Anyway, so Nob is where the priests were. Here's what happened. David, when running from Saul, goes to the priestly town of Nob. He's got nothing with him, and he needs supplies. He lies to the priests. They say, why are you here, King David, empty-handed? He said, oh, I'm on a secret mission from King Saul. That's what he said. Can you help me out? And the priests there do three things for him. They pray for him. They inquire of the Lord. That's what it means. They pray for him. Two, they give him food, bread, showbread that was put in the uh, temple. You're not supposed to. David shouldn't be eating it, but the priest cut corners here. And then he gave him a weapon. And the weapon was Goliath's sword. Goliath was killed by David. They cut off his head, and they brought his sword here to Nob. So the priest had, those are the three things they give to David. While all this is going on, this Edomite is there, taking it all in. David should have known better. He should have realized, oh, no, if the Edomite snitches, if he rats me out, I have just put all these people in jeopardy. But David is not thinking. He's just doing his own thing at this point. He's taking care of himself. And he does put all of them in jeopardy, as you will see. So that's kind of what's happening. So verse 11, 
Then the king, after Doeg spills the goods and says, I was there, David said this, the priest took care of him. The king, he's paranoid. He's going crazy. The king sent someone to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's household, the priests who were in Nob, and all of them came to the king. And they got to be thinking, what is up? Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, here I am, my lord. Saul then said to him, why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day. See, Saul's crazy. He's misinterpreting the whole deal. But now the priest is in jeopardy for crying out loud. And so this is kind of what's, what's going on. Then verse 14, Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Now that surprised me. You mean I'm in the midst of a king who wants to kill me. And he has falsely accused me of stuff. I want to defend myself. I want to say, King, I've been a good guy. I have submitted to you all this time. I've been a faithful servant. What have I ever done to cause you to doubt my law? You know, you go into all this stuff. He doesn't do that. Instead, he speaks about the faithfulness of the king, David. He does not put forth his own innocence. He puts forth the innocence of David. Who's been as faithful as David? Even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house. It's very interesting. If you're the guilty party, but you can attach yourself to a faithful king, (laughs) you may be judged in a good way because of the merits of the king. Well, that didn't work out here. Why? Because the judge is a nutcase. Saul was not rational. But what if you had a rational judge who you have to go before and give an account? You go before this rational judge. You are guilty as sin you don't have a defense but you say to the judge but there is a faithful one an honored one who by faith I am connected to and then you say oh judge though I be a guilty party he suffered in my place and the reasonable judge the non-crazy judge thinks about this and says case dismissed You are acquitted, not on your own merits, on the merits of the one to whom you by faith are attached to. Of course, I'm talking about King Jesus, right? Can you see how this works? We don't, listen, we stand before God one day. Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is there. He presents his tight case against us. We can't even dispute the facts. In fact, Satan doesn't even know the half of it, how we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. And then Jesus, the defense attorney, steps up. And he says to the judge, Father, it is true. My client has committed sin against your holiness. There's no doubt about it. But Father, that's the very person you sent me to die for. I took that person's place. Father, all your wrath do that one was poured out on me. And that's why I cried out in the process of it all. Oh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you did, Father, because you're holy and sin must be atoned for and you're good. I was the substitute who stood in the place of those otherwise guilty parties. And the Father says, case dismissed, enter into heaven. That's what happened. It didn't work here because Saul, the ultimate adjudicator, was out of his mind. But I guarantee the creator of the universe is not. An attachment to Jesus, the sinless one, is what will cause the father to render a not guilty verdict, an attachment to anything else. If it's your own, oh, I wasn't so bad. Or you do like people today. I made a mistake. I made a mistake. I've conducted an affair with that lady for 15 months on the sly so that my wife didn't know. I snuck money out of the house. It was a mistake. That's not a mistake. That's a a planned, deliberate, uh, chronic rebellion against Almighty God. 
Now, I'm not beating up on that person. I'm capable of that, and so are you. But the point is, what defense are you getting? What self-defense? Are you kidding me? We don't have a self-defense. It's attachment to the faithful, innocent Jesus, who was without sin. So anyway, it doesn't work here because Saul is the wrong judge to come before. So here's what happens, verse 15. Uh, Ahimelech begins to say more stuff. Far be it from me. Don't let the king impute anything to his servant or any of the household of my father. Your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. But the king said, verse 16, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death. Priests of the Lord. Guards kill the priests of the Lord. Because their hand also is with David. And because they knew that he was fleeing and didn't reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. Can you imagine? These are called priests of God. They're wearing ephods, a sign of priesthood and all this kind of stuff. They're intercessors for the people between God and man. And the king, the crazed king, orders them to kill all the priests. They can't bring themselves to do it. And so here's what happens. Verse 18, then the king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priest. Why? He has murderous intentions. This is Satan's plant. This is Satan's man. And he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He killed him, 85. It gets worse. Verse 19. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. He had a lust for murder. He is Satan's man. He doesn't only kill the 85 priests. He killed their wives, their children, infants, livestock, the whole deal. Makes you think, oh, God, what's up? Where are you when stuff like this happens? It happens in our world, too. Oh, God, where are you? Sovereign God, seated on the throne, omniscient, all-knowing God. What's up? So I want to share something with you. About 50 years before this horrific incident, there was another priest named Eli. We read about him a long time ago. He wasn't a bad guy, but he was extremely passive with regard to the behavior, misbehavior, I should say, of his sons. He had sons who also were priests. You know what they would do? Ladies would come uh, to be ministered to at the tabernacle, offer sacrifice to Almighty God, do what they were there to do, and the sons would have sex with them. And then the sons would take monies, material things that were there to sustain the tabernacle given for the service of God. So they committed chronic sexual and, and misbehavior and financial impropriety. The dad knew. The dad didn't want to stir things up. Eli, he looked away. Not a bad guy. <sighs> Passive father. No restraint for the kids. So God said something to Eli then. It was about 50 years from this incident. God said to Eli, 1 Samuel chapter 2. We were there a long time ago. God said, I intended to have you, he's talking to Eli, and your household be priests before me forever. But there is no way I'm going to allow this to go on. I'm going to put an end to your family so that they will no longer serve as priests. Every member will die before his time. None shall live to be old. Not one of your family will live out his days and even their children shall die by the sword. And 50 years later, Doeg, Doeg did it. It looks like Doeg is calling the shots. Not true. Sovereign God is. Which tells me God has the capacity even to use evildoers to carry out his plan. He's sovereign. We sing around here, our God reigns. It's not just a song. It's good theology. Our God reigns. I didn't say understand all his ways, but I do not question his sovereignty. He can use even the most evil person. That helps me in this world today. I was doing a little informal accounting in my own mind the other day about how many nations of the world are run by crazy people. I mean, you start with the guy in North Korea. He's a narcissistic egomaniac. 
Crazy. Let's move on to Iran. Not the Iranian people. I didn't say that. I'm talking about the Iranian leadership. They're crazy. They're bent on world domination. Nuts. Go to South America. Venezuela. Ah, the Venezuelans are suffering. Their government is heartless. Crazy. How about Putin in Russia? Prior KGB leader. But he's no choir boy now. He's running a whole nation. Crazy stuff. How about the guy in Syria? Gassing his own people. <clears throat> you go all around. You put your finger on any place in the world. You have a tendency to say, oh, God, what's up? I mean, I'm singing Our God Reigns, but do you? I didn't even get close to home. I'm being tactful here. How does this happen? I don't know, but I do know our God reigns. And he has the capacity to use every one of the above-named people. Remember a guy named Stalin? <sighs> killed, killed millions. Remember a guy named Idi Amin? Africa? Slaughtered many people. Remember a guy named Pol Pot? Cambodia? <sighs> killed people. My favorite, Adolf Hitler. Slaughtered millions, not just Jews. Millions of people. What's up? Now, I'm not trying to justify the evil behaviors of these people, like, for instance, the Holocaust. But I can see how God can make use of it. I don't think we'd have the modern state of Israel if we didn't have the Holocaust. Isn't that a weird thing to say? I'll tell you what I mean. After six million Jews got put in the gas chamber, the, the world community felt a little sympathetic. Man, these Jews took a big hit. We've got to provide for them. Did you know one of the proposals was for the Jews to go to Uganda? Put us in Uganda? We sympathize with them. We just don't want them living on our, on our block. Someone said, Uganda? We, what do we know about Uganda? What about our ancient homeland, Israel? And the Jews end up in Israel, May 14, 1948. I'm not in any way justifying the Holocaust and Adolf Hitler. I'm just saying, look what sovereign God can do to use this. And on and, and on and on. No, Doeg doesn't call the shots. God does. God does. And he always has good redemptive purposes. So anyway, this is kind of what, what's happening. So then verse 20, one son of Ahimelech, uh, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, one of the priest's sons, his name is Abiathar, escaped, and he fled after David. And in verse 21, Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. What a tragedy. What a, who's responsible? Is God responsible? Yeah. He's sovereign. Is Satan responsible? Yeah. Is uh, David responsible? Yeah. I mean, David says in verse 22, I have brought about the death of every person. Yeah. Is Doeg responsible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the guy who wielded the sword. You know what this helps me to do? When you see human tragedy in the world today, don't look for simplistic explanations. It's usually multifactorial. There's a lot of stuff that goes, that's behind or that explains otherwise inexplicable tragedy today. See, if you put it all on God, you won't trust God. If you put it all on Satan, you'll worship Satan. If you, got, you hold God too responsible for these outbreaks of evil, you'll never feel comfortable with him. If you hold Satan too responsible for these things, you'll give him more power than he possesses as a created being. You've got to have some balance. There's lots of stuff that goes into the tragedies that happen. Anyway, David takes personal responsibility, and he's sort of right. He has responsibility. What an indiscretion. He is putting all the priests at risk. Doeg the Edomite is right there within earshot when David lies and when the priest helps him and all this kind of stuff. And so David says to Abiathar, verse 22, I knew on that day. David even knew. I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. You see, there was like a check in his spirit, but he pressed on anyway. And he said, I brought about the death of every person in your father's household. 
You know, everything we do affects somebody else. You know that? What David did there, look at how it affected people. I know today people like to say, look at here. It's nobody's business what you do. You're an adult. You, as long as you don't hurt anyone, it doesn't matter what you do. Or a woman has a right to her body. That's the justification for abortion. Woman has a right to her body. Show me one thing we do that doesn't have potential to impact. Well, of course, in that case, the baby. <clears throat> but, but what, what, you know, this idea of two consenting adults, the guy who's having a, an affair, you know, I'm, I'm not imposing myself on the woman. She's a consenting adult. We're not really hurting anybody. Really? It's very naive. This idea that we are independent of one another and that society isn't polluted by each member's sin is nonsense. We are connected. There's nothing we do. You don't run a stop sign without consequences. You don't get drunk without consequences. You don't cheat on your wife without consequences. You don't stop taking your medication without consequences. There's no such thing as secret sin. That's just sin yet to be revealed. God sees in secret. Do you know that? Am I trying to scare you? Yeah. And me. Everything I do and say has impact, either for good or for ill. You know, we Americans like to think, oh, no, no, no. We're independent. We're free. No. Freedom means an obligation to the other members of society. Everything... One member of our society does affects the rest of society. David does this thing, and it was even a check in his feet. He knew it was the wrong thing to do, and he pressed on anyway. People got killed because of it. Anyway, so that David's reminded of it every time he sees Abiathar. So he says to him, verse 23, stay with me. Don't be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks yours. For you are safe with me. It's very interesting to me. Two different kinds of kings. <clears throat> One had raw power and nothing else. Saul. He's not safe. If you are ever under the umbrella of a leader who has nothing for you but a show of raw power, you're in trouble. And most of the people in the world today are under people like that. They've got nothing but raw power. They don't have an ounce of mercy, compassion, or concern for their subordinates, their constituents, their citizens. It's just an exercise of raw power. It's King Saul. Another king didn't have that raw power. He had some. But with it, he had mercy and compassion. And he was safe. Wouldn't it be great to have a king like that who had power and mercy at the same time? Wow. That'd be a dream. Wake up. It's not a dream. It's a reality. This is King Jesus. He's the omnipotent one, the ancient of days. He's the agent of creation. And he stands on a hill in Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, overlooking the old city, and he cries. I'm going to tell you something. Raw power doesn't weep. Jesus wept. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I long to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing, and he wept. What a king. David is in a small way kind of a foreshadowing of King Jesus. He was the safe place for Abiathar to run to. He had authority for sure. He had an army of his own, but he said, you'll be safe with me. You know, when you run to Jesus at the foot of the cross, you're safe. Where else are you going to go? Where, where are you going to? Where are you going to? Where are you going to go? Where? He has power over death. Last, how do I know that? He rose up from it. He beat up on the last enemy, death, but he also has mercy. I remember him saying, "Father, forgive them at the at the cross. Forgive them, for they know not what they do." He had authority to obtain forgiveness from on high for those who put their faith in him. He had that authority, and he had the will, merciful heart, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Run to King Jesus. Have you run to King Jesus? Do it. It's not just coming to church. Where are you going to run to? Who's your refuge? We have to give an account. 
the God who made us, who made us, will make us give an account. Where am I going to find safety from the wrath of God? I know people don't like to hear this, but it's true. He's a consuming fire, the wrath of God. Where are you going to run? Run to the cross. On the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's at that moment when he received the wrath of God for me and for you. Run to King Jesus. David was a safe king for Abiathar. Jesus is a safe king for sinners who owe a holy God against whom we have sinned. I feel perfectly safe in the embrace of King Jesus. He's not just raw power. He's an iron fist, someone said, in a velvet glove. He's totally in control. Our God reigns, but he weeps. You know what he said? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I give you rest. Raw power cannot give its citizens rest. Power mixed with mercy and grace can give you rest. Have you run to Jesus? If not, you're running somewhere. You're running to the wrong places and the wrong people. Only Jesus is the safe place. I hope you've run to him. Lord Jesus, one of the benefits of so doing is the ease with which we can approach you and your throne of grace right now and talk to you just as we are. Thank you for the access you've granted to us. Thank you for raising us to the level of sons and daughters. The family tie, we understand that. That means provision, protection. It means an irreversible bond. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for being the perfect dad none of us have ever had. Thank you. You love being a dad, and you do it so well. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the safe place. We make no self-defense. We don't have one. Thank you for defending us. Thank you for your shed blood. Thank you that it is the cleansing agent. And though we still do things contrary to the will of your Father, Still, a verdict of not guilty has been rendered because of your merits. Thank you for being the perfect king. Powerful, merciful, all wrapped up in one. Oh God, I pray there be not a person here who doesn't run by faith, who doesn't run to you even today. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Folks, God bless you. Next week, Lord willing, we'll do something else. And uh,